You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. I am Jason Fitz. Still? It's good to be on right You're still Jason Fitz and you're still (laughs) hosting it. What number of hours is this that the fine listeners have been blessed with your voice? This is how you know we're hitting peak summer, where they're just, uh, at this point, they're like, just put Fitz on all day, and either people will love it or hate it, but it, it'll, it'll cover it. That's where we are. Sit Spain, Jason Fitz. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I told people earlier, hate listens count, too. I'll take all of it. Uh, we're going to be hanging out with you for the next couple hours. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I had three hours earlier, hung out with Shanae Ogumake. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to say it, Sarah. I feel like, you know... I'm, I, I was getting warmed up for the, the real act here. I keep telling them they're wow. the openers. We're the closers. Yeah. Like we're, we're coming that. in to, to seal the deal. We're the, we're the main event. I like that you're getting in your reps. One of these days, you're going to be a real pro at this radio thing. Hey, I managed to say dash pass con- Ooh, consistently earlier today. And I did. I felt like I, I put my big boy pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> I had a little swagger in my step when I went to tinkle. That's what happened. All right, let's get to some oh, straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. I said big boy pants and tinkle all in one sentence. I just, <laughs> I give up. Uh, the, the Olympics have come to an end. And, you know, Sarah, it's, it's easy to look back on the last couple of weeks and think about some of the controversies or to think about some of the loud conversations that have taken place. But the first thing that hits me when we get to the end of the Olympics is, man, I'm amazed and really happy we made it through because there were plenty of times that you and I have talked over the last six to nine months about the fact that we weren't even sure it could happen. It would happen, what it would look like if it did happen. It didn't always look pretty and it it's not what we're used to. But at least we can say with a sigh of relief for all the athletes that worked their tails off to get there. We made it. Yeah. And, you know, I think. There will be a temptation to look at all the enjoyment that we got out of the games and focus on um, the incredible drama, the the tears and the the celebrations and all of that, and maybe look past some of the conflict that, that we talked about leading up to it. And there's a place for that, but also worth recognizing that the long-term effects of the Olympics still being held in a city and neighborhood and area that didn't want it are yet to be determined. So if if you want to proclaim them an abject disaster too early, if you want to proclaim them um, an outright success that maybe was um, worried about too much in, in, the, in the lead up, too early for that too. Uh, I, I will just say that it was nice that few of the very highest athletes uh, in terms of reputation and expectation were affected by COVID. Um, there were certainly a couple and, and their Olympic dreams were dashed, but... Um, for the most part, it ended up being more safe in terms of COVID contractions than we thought after that first couple of days of numbers came out, at least on my end. No, I, and I actually was thinking when I said that to, to set that up for you, I was actually thinking sort of the difference, uh, uh, the opposite angle of it. For me, sometimes it was so hard to think past the COVID and the difficulty that it meant for the, you know, for Tokyo and for how hard it was for the athletes and the lack of information they were getting. I felt it hard to just sit back and enjoy the outcome at times because of the negativity around it. So that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't at all, actually. I found that once I knew that it was happening, come hell or high water, no no matter what people said, I was able to completely immerse myself in the competitions and to do what I always do, which is you tell me a story, you give me a reason to care, and then I find myself crying on my couch about a person in a sport that I didn't cared just a little bit at all about just oh, a, a couple minutes before <laughs> the refugee nation thing was like just yeah for a solid cry a day like i, I mean just an ugly cry a day out all of the, the stories swimming, uh, track know. and oh. field i mean oh yeah i'm a sucker for the olympics i watch every second of it that i can get maybe not every second i mean i did watch a canoe sprint race i didn't watch any long canoe races i, I you know i kind of said all right i'm out after the after the 200 meter canoe sprint Um, But I mean, one of the things that stands out to me every time is um, how proud I get of the U.S. women in in their competitions. I think I saw today if American women had gone as their own country, they would have been fourth in the medal count. Just just the women representing America would have beaten every country but three in a total medal count. And I wanted to hear something fits because the the, the men's and women's basketball teams are obviously both incredibly dominant. Um, The men's team struggles more and has had moments in history that have been disappointing. 
uh, which required the Redeem team, if you remember, to try to get them back on track. So here's what it sounded like when they won, and Kevin Durant and Draymond Green immediately had words for anyone who doubted them. Everybody who said we were going to take the L, they had, a, they had some power rankings on them. Kendrick Perkins, you talk a lot of We had a lot of They had some, Act like you American. <laughs> they had some power rankings out They had us four behind us folks. Like, like this is not our game. Come on, man. Talking about they catching up to us. Like, are you serious? This skill is unmatched. You dig? Shout out to everybody that won this gold, everybody that chipped in and helped out. We wanted to press conference, but I had to talk my real quick. Okay. So, yeah, they're very happy, but also immediately ready to hop onto social and talk back to all the haters. Meanwhile, here's five-time Olympic gold medalist Sue Bird on the U.S. women winning their seventh straight Olympics. So for our team to, I mean, especially for our team, we lost our first two exhibition games. Um, so for our team to kind of, you know, deal with all of the same adversity everybody else is dealing with and just never let it get us down, to be sitting here now with a gold medal around our necks is, is really special. And, I mean, I think that I've, I'm happy. That's it. I'm just so happy for, for everyone on our team, for everyone involved with USA Basketball. Bit of a different vibe there, Fitz, from, from Super. Equally... Uh, possible to be fueled, right? Like, I mean, I think there were there were plenty of people trying to say on uh, for for both teams that you know the world is catching up and that things aren't going to be as easy and that you know especially with some of the drama that came into the U.S. women's team coming into this thing and and the way the roster was constructed, I think there was plenty of doubt on both sides. So it's interesting to see the handling of that moment be so different in tone from two people that are respectively each a legend within their yeah. sport. I mean, the men got a lot more criticism, and rightfully so. They struggled a lot more. The women are sort of a shoe-in, and later on in the show, we're going to talk to a women's basketball legend about why the coverage of the U.S. women's hoops team doesn't always seem to fit their greatness. Um, but speaking of greatness, very quickly, because if I don't speed read this, we'll never finish, I want to just remind everyone of the championships that Sue Bird has won, Okay. <laughs> 95 Empire State Games, 96 New York City High School, 97 New York State High School, 98 New York City High School, 98 New York State High School, 98 High School National, 99 Big East, 2000 Big East, 2000 NCAA, 2000 Jones Cup, 2001 Big East, 2002 Big East, 2002 NCAA, 2002 World Challenge, 2002 Worlds, 2004 WNBA, 2004 Olympics, 2007 Russian League, 2007 EuroLeague, 2007 FIBA Americas, 2008 Russian League, 2008 EuroLeague, 2008 Olympics, 2008 FIBA Diamond Ball, 2009 EuroLeague, 2009 Ekaterinburg Invitational, 2010 EuroLeague, 2010 WNBA, 2010 Worlds, 2012 Russian League, 2012 Olympics, 2013 Russian League, 2014 Russian League, 2014 World, 2016 Olympics, 2018 WNBA, 2018 Worlds, 2020 WNBA, 2020 Olympics for a fifth gold. Not bad. I mean, decent. Like, I mean, for somebody that has my life's greatest accomplishments tattooed on my arm, all I keep thinking is she would need like, and she's you need tall. a longer She'd arm, like a lot of arm, a lot of leg, a lot of side. Like it's just going to take the whole thing, and that uh, speaks to her greatness. That's some straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contracts, no compromise. God, that's just daunting when you think about it. All right, coming up, things changed drastically in a pair of Major League Baseball races over the weekend. We'll tell you about it next with some quickies on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. We have a lot to get to, Fitz. I know you already had several hours of radio before this to, to, to get in what you needed to talk about, but I got some things to get off my chest. We're going to do it the way we do it here. Quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Yeah, we're going to start with some baseball. And Fitz, I realized that the conundrum I'm having post-fire sale from the Cubs leaves me with zero good options. On the one hand, it makes me want to cry barf when I see the former Cubs that I love having great success elsewhere. So when I see Anthony Rizzo absolutely crushing dongs for the Yankees, setting records, I want to cry barf. On the other hand, Anthony Rizzo testing positive for COVID, being unavailable for his team and starting yet another conversation now in a new market about his decision not to be vaccinated makes me equally as upset. I don't want him to fail or have great success, which leaves me in a, a difficult position here. Yeah. Um, by the way, Crybarf is such a interesting, like, a visual. I'm not yeah. sure exactly, like, are you About barfing first and then crying, or are you crying oh, first? Oh, it's simultaneous. And then, it's kind of okay. like food poisoning. It's coming out of both ends. 
I mean, that is just it. It's an image in and of itself. No, I mean, to your point, though, when you when you have a fire sale like this, it's always difficult. But also for everybody that gave up assets to acquire guys like Rizzo, you have a certain group of expectations. And number one is just yeah. that he'll make himself available. Right. Like so this just right. you put yourself in that situation that we keep talking about right now, where athletes are choosing to put their availability at risk, which is particularly hard if you're a team that was aggressive at the trade market, a trade deadline to make your team better to try and make a move in the back half. you got to have people to do that. Yeah, and same goes for Javi Baez. He left the game mid at bat with left hip tightness. Not sure how long he'll be out, but um, due to no fault of his own, injuries happen. That's two players that uh, teams gave up stuff for and might not be available for a bit. So uh, hard to watch. If hip tightness is a reason to get a week off, then I'll see you next month. I mean, hip tightness is... is, I don't see you taking many swings here, Fitz. You're sitting in a chair. Let's not associate what what you do with what they're doing, okay? All right, next story. Quickies. Speaking of Javi Baez, the Mets, woof. Oh, man. They have been leading the NL East for months, and now after getting swept by the Phillies... Their decline has left them looking at first place Phillies, second place Braves. And they had five runs and 13 hits in three games. They were batting 179 so far in the month of August, going one in seven to start the month. And Fitz around the corner, 13 games in a row against the Dodgers and Giants. Well, two things here. Number one, that schedule is absolutely brutal. But number two, this is all the fault of Chris Mitchell, uh, one of our buddies that works at ESPN, that uh, decided he was going to do some trash talking to you uh, after Mm -hmm. the Baez trade. And ever since then, it has just absolutely gone downhill. Now, let's also be real. I mean, the Mets, uh, they've got plenty of time to get things right. And you're right. They sit two and a half back uh, of the Phillies and the Braves, but they're trending the wrong way. It it feels like it's falling apart and it feels very Mets-like to just expect that this is the way they're going to be. At the very least, we didn't think that after these acquisitions, they'd be struggling to try and just win the NL East, nonetheless, where they fall within the rest of the National League. Uh, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I may or may not have a Chris Mitchell voodoo doll. We all know that that's worked well for me in the past, but he did ask for this with uh, with some of the trash talking and unnecessary rubbing in of me losing some of my favorite players. And they got metzed, to be honest. Um, you did say they've got time to turn things around. That is 100% too. But let me ask you uh, how confident you are in the Mets turning things around after the statistic I'm about to give you. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Only one National League team averages fewer runs than the Mets. The Pittsburgh Pirates, who are 30 games under 500. Oh, good God. Oh, yeah, good God. the uh, pitching was really helping the Mets. They're sitting at 56 and 55, mainly because of that pitching. Uh, one of the big reasons, of course, DeGrom, who they might not get back. So I don't know when you're hovering around Pittsburgh Pirates. I don't know if uh, you're putting yourself in a great situation down the stretch. All right, next story. Quickies. Uh, We'll keep this quick uh, because it's a similar refrain. The Red Sox have lost nine of their last 11 games and are in grave danger of falling out of playoff position. Fitz, a team that didn't do quite what it took to get Anthony Rizzo, not that that would have been the fix and and not that you could depend on one person to to get everything uh, turned around, but oof, the Red Sox, another team that has just watched in recent weeks, uh, and, and a brutal two and eight road trip, pulling them out of contention uh, and uh, yeah, out of the lead. Yeah. Well, and, and not only was it a two and eight road trip, but they were ahead by multiple runs in four of those losses. So they couldn't hold a lead. Uh, during the course of that process, they hit 197, uh, which is terrible, and their starting pitching had a 6.39 ERA. So, like, your Oof. starting pitching is falling apart. You can't hit, and when you can get a lead, you blow a lead. Like, that's that's a 10-game span that's not just 2-8. and eight, That's eight times that you were really kicked yeah. in the no-no places and remind <laughs> of the level of stink that you're living in right now if you're the Red Sox. Uh, good news for them. Chris Sale will be back next week, and the bad news is Kyle Schwarber had... A setback. So yet another new acquisition going to a place to help out. And for a variety of reasons, whether it's Rizzo, Baez, or Schwarber, not being available to help out their Sounds team. Like All right, it's Quickies, thing. Spain and Fitz, Air Spain, Jason Fitz, were presented by Progressive Insurance. Let's get to the next story. Quickies. You'd think we would lead 
with this story on a show when someone secures over $200 million to continue playing a game. But when it's Luca getting the Supermax, did anybody expect anything different? Five years, $207 million Supermax rookie extension with the Mavs. Luca is the guy that you want to build around for the foreseeable future in the NBA, just 22 years old, becoming the face of the league. And there were no question marks for anybody here, right, Fitz? I mean, I don't know. I don't know on either side why you turn this down. The thing about Luca that I think is really stunning is that ever since he was essentially a kid, he's been playing against adults and no mm-hmm. situation's ever been too big for him. And that's, you know, if you look at the, the Mavs and their comfort in, in writing these checks, part of it is not just because of what he's done. It's because every step of the way, Luca just seems capable of rising to whatever the challenge is. I, I'm, I'm so comfortable with this investment for the Mavs and so happy for Luca because, frankly, if this feels like a safe play by both sides mm-hmm. and if feels like it works out for everybody involved easy to root for guy and to your point whether playing professionally back home amongst men and looking incredible to winning rookie of the year to being a first team all nba for the last two years to taking the slovenian national team to their first olympic berth and fourth place in tokyo he is accomplishing things at a rapid pace making it real easy to depend on him for a long time final story quickies I'm so sorry we don't have too much time to spend on the NBA investigating the Bulls for their Lonzo Ball deal and Kyle Lowry's sign-and-trade deal with the Heat. Not a lot of information. Uh, it's about illegal contact between teams and players ahead of the opening of free agency. How this could be investigated when compared with plenty of other places that also had deals done within seconds of the trade deadline is beyond me, but we'll keep you updated if it sounds like there will be significant penalties for the Bulls or the Heat. We will. We'll pass it along, and we might pass some judgment on it as well. But we'll keep you updated when there's more information coming out about those investigations. For now, we'll just be happy they officially announced Lonzo, which means no get-backs, no take-backs. Uh, coming up on Spain and Fitz, we're going to dive into the dominance of U.S. women's basketball with a Hall of Famer and former gold medalist. It's next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Joining us now to talk about the unbelievable dominance of USA women's basketball and her incredible career playing all over the place. Basketball Hall of Famer, 84 gold medalist, first woman to play for the Harlem Globetrotters, former WNBA player. The resume is wild. It's Lynette Woodward. Thanks for the time, Lynette. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you guys doing this evening? Well, great. we're great, but we're not as good as uh, the women's USA hoops team taking home a seventh straight gold and twerking in the locker room and making us all jealous of the of the teamwork and the success. Um, the the unbelievable dominance of this team. Before we get into the coverage or the way we talk about them, or maybe don't talk about them enough, just explain maybe why. They are able to keep coming back year after year with a different roster and still own the globe. Well, they have, uh, of course, some uh, great veterans uh, in Sue Bird, uh, Diane Taurasi. Uh, they have some young talent, and they just seem to blend, and they, and they want to, you know, represent our country as they do very well. And when you have um, – great players that want to come together, uh, it's really no stopping them. Uh, the team effort, the mental toughness, uh, you know, all of them have played all over the world, so there's no competition that they haven't seen. Um, so it's just really just getting in concert and um, just making things work game by game. Lynette, you said there's no nothing they haven't seen, and obviously there's nothing you didn't see in your career, but – you still have that, that gold medal from 84. How much different is the pressure when you know the entire world is watching and you're representing your country? <laughs> well, that's where your focus comes in. You know, when you're off the court, you think about those things. But once you hit the floor and the ball goes up, uh, it's game time. And it's, it's almost as if you go somewhere else and you get in the rhythm of the game. Uh, you know what you come there for. And you're just looking to... Um, you know, follow the game plan, whatever it is. Obviously, that last game uh, with the uh, women's gold medal uh, team, uh, they took it inside to Brittany. Brittany Griner had 30, I believe, 30 points in that game, numerous rebounds. But just playing against a team that was much smaller, uh, they just went to their strength. And everyone um, 
fed into it, and it was like uh, it was clockwork. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was incredible. Lynette Woodward, basketball Hall of Famer, former WNBA and, and gold medalist with us here. Let's talk about the coverage, Lynette, because I think it's it's multifaceted. The reasons why maybe this team doesn't get as much love as some other teams. And, and to me, it's partly because we do get to see basketball in other places like collegiate and WNBA. So it's not as much of a novelty as some of the swimming or gymnastics or sports that feel like they get the focus in just the Olympic years. I think there's also a predominantly black queer makeup of the team that's disparate from, say, the U.S. women's soccer team that has a lot of that girl next door vibe for people that some uh, find easier to, to promote. Um, and then there's a conversation, of course, about um, attitudes towards women's basketball differing from, say, soccer because of the average bro on his couch thinking I could go out there and do that. How do you kind of look at the coverage of this team compared to the an unbelievable success they've had? And do you think they get enough love and enough really uh, comprehensive breakdowns of what they've accomplished? Well, I'm, I'm sort of greedy. I always want uh, women's basketball to get more coverage. Uh, I've always uh, said that whenever I have the opportunity. Uh, it's, all, it's something that we have to continue to fight for. Uh, I think the game is worthy. I think the talent is worthy. I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of things. Um, you know, I know sometimes you have to share the wealth, but we've proven uh, over and over again that we are a, a product that is worth watching. Uh, seven straight gold medals. Uh, it warrants uh, an opportunity to be seen. And, uh, you know, I just can only hope in the days to come that it will get even better. Um, I don't hate on the other sports. Uh, I just want us to get uh, more time, and uh, hopefully it will happen. Uh, I can say this, that uh, it's more than when I played. So uh, I just have to keep hoping that, you know, for the next field of uh, of athletes that come along, uh, the gold medal uh, Olympic team, that there will be even more. When you played, Lynette, what was the fight like to try and get conversation and coverage? Well, uh, it was very little. Uh, I think uh, with our team, the 1984 team, at least, um, you know, it was the first time that we were um, competing. Uh, well, I guess it was the second time, 1980, we, we, we competed, but we had to decline the invitation. So in 1984, we had a little more, um, I guess, coverage because of what had happened in the past and it was the first time that we were on stage it was here in the United States and I think we did get a lot more coverage than women's basketball had gotten in the past but again you know we just have to keep hoping that it will get better uh, and it has and there's still a lot of room uh, for growth and uh, I just hope to see it uh, down the road. Lynette Woodward is with us here on Spain and Fitz. You look at your career and where basketball took you in part because there wasn't necessarily a through line from college to professional here in the States. When you started out, you played in Italy, the Olympics, the WNBA, Japan, and you signed with the WNBA in 97, retiring at 99 because you were, what, 38 when you joined one of the oldest members when the league had just got underway. So you were part of ushering in this new era of a professional women's league. And now we're at the 25th anniversary just tell me what it's like, because I think, you know, there, there, are, there are ways that we forget the nascence of women's pro leagues and other moments where we really celebrate that 25 years is a long time. But uh, you were you've been there for every year uh, from the inside and then the outside. What do you make of where the league is today? Well, you know, first of all, I, I just feel uh, grateful that I had an opportunity to play the game and I was able to have success in it, even though there was no clear path. Uh, to success, and I just found ways. I, I just believe that if I had the gift to play the game, that there would be uh, some place that I could play. And it just seemed to happen that way uh, throughout my life, throughout my career. Uh, it's very uh, nice for me to to look at the athletes today, see how young that they're starting uh, these grassroots programs, and to know that they can dream at that moment of having a professional league or. Uh, dream of going around the world to play uh, is there for them. And all they have to do is to focus, discipline themselves and, and grab on to that baton and just run with it. Um, I think, um, you know, with 
with just a hope and a dream, I was able to uh, play on six continents, you know, mm-hmm. and and enjoy a wonderful career and, and still enjoying it. Uh, so with all that's going on now and all the possibilities, uh, the sky is the limit. Um, I'm just, you know, looking forward to uh, just watching uh, women's basketball continue to grow at the professional level, uh, watch them make more money, watch them get more coverage, and, and really become um, a part of the mainstream of our society. Lynette, the social oh, activism yeah. and using their voice is so important to, to WNBA players specifically now. Was that something you felt when you were around the league and playing? Uh, actually, you know, we were dealing with the same challenges that uh, we see every day on television. Um, uh, life was a little bit quieter or either we were uh, so focused, we didn't really see some of the things that were going on. But uh, just some of the things today are a lot, you know, with social media, uh, just the coverage on television, what we're seeing I have never seen before, you know, it's amazing to me, but I, I'm glad that um, these athletes are, are taking pride in, um, in who they are and what they stand for. Um, if I was in that time, I, I hope that I would have stood and uh, voiced uh, my opinion and uh, tried to uh, help make a change. Yeah, absolutely. Lynette Woodward is with us here, former gold medalist, former WNBA player, basketball Hall of Famer, the first woman to be part of the Harlem Globetrotters. And they're still at it, too. They're doing the hashtag spread game tour, bringing their newly reimagined tour to over 150 cities. That starts on July 21st. They were, of course, inactive during the pandemic year. But now they're back to spreading the love of basketball uh, and and entertainment in basketball. Uh, We got to let you go. Lynette, but uh, are you going to be out at some of these uh, Globetrotters games seeing that the team you used to play with? Absolutely. Whenever they're in the area, it's a must. <laughs> yeah, it is a the must. Love is always there. So much fun. Lynette, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You guys have a great evening. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. One of the biggest stories of the weekend, the passing of college football legendary coach Bobby Bowden. And I'll say it's something that I think a lot of us in the college football community have been bracing for for the last uh, week or so ever since the announcement came that uh, he was very ill and uh, you know as you see this moment over the course of the last couple of days one of the most heartwarming things has been to see the impact he had to so many human beings aside from any impact on the field just the players that he touched as as men and the families that changed because Bobby Bowden was a part of their life so to capture a little of that we're going to head over to the Goodyear hotline where we're joined by Leroy Butler Packers great played for Bowden at Florida State and really appreciate your time I know it's always difficult when you're talking about loss for somebody that meant so much uh, but I'm going to ask mm-hmm. you to try and do that Leroy I appreciate you you joining us as you look back on Bobby Bowden what was it about him that really touched your life so much? Well, uh, and thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I think for the most part, uh, I went through uh, my mother, um, who's uh, very had a connection with Coach Bowden. I'll tell you about that in a second. But uh, when you have you know somebody in stage four or in hospice, you 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 grieve with them. Um, really before they pass away. So when they pass away, you can celebrate their life. Yeah. Um, but, and, and Coach Bowden coached tons of players, tons. And I know they all got great stories. But for me, it was different because it was a connection because I was a Proposition 48. And I know people are like, well, what is that? It was a, um, all these universities, they could not bring in a certain, if you didn't meet certain requirements. And, and I was one of those students. I was one of six. And I remember him saying, you know, I don't want to mail a letter to your mom accepting you. I want to talk to her. I want to let her know we want you to come to Florida State. And I was like, well, Coach, I don't know if you want to come in the project in the inner city, you know, to do that. But he insisted. He said, no, I want to come and I want to tell Ms. Butler we want to have you. That was life-changing for me. When you get a letter, fine. But when the person who writes the letter hand delivers it not the mailman well i love mailmen but (laughs) that delivery was 
like I've never seen before because this is the this is the project the inner city. I don't think y'all understand the impact of seeing Coach Bowden get out of a car and walk into a uh, in the south in Jacksonville, Florida is ninety five degrees with no air conditioning. And he walked in, and he's still so cool because he still had a blazer on that was maroon. <laughs> well, I, you can't say maroon. You got to say garnet. Miss <laughs> Butler, we want Leroy Butler to come. To, that was impactful to me, and I'll never yeah. forget it. Uh, we're talking to Super Bowl champ, four-time Pro Bowler, all-decade teamer, Packer Hall of Famer, uh, Leroy Butler, and, and I'm, I'm – trying to think of all the coaches and including assistants and everybody else that you've played for over the course of your career at the high school level, college, and then in the pros, what made Bobby different? Platinum question. I mean, that's a great question because you're so right. You have coaches at every level that impact you. Some of them are rock stars. They, they don't even visit. They just write a letter. Do you want to come? You're like, yes, of course, I'm coming. Or if it's, you know, a guy who you think can win a national championship. Or if you think, hey, I can, I can be on television every week because he plays in a great conference. Coach Bowden was a spiritual guy. And I'm gonna, here's a great, the best example. We have Florida A&M University in Tallahassee. And I remember telling him, I say, listen, I've, I'm, you know, I'm a young guy. I've never been to a step show. He said, what's a step show? I said, what are fraternities and sororities? They kind of dance in the street. They have this fun. And, you know, it's HBCUs and stuff. He said, listen, okay, you can go, but you can be 10 minutes late. Okay. But I'm telling you, don't be 11 minutes late. I said, yes, sir. And he said something to me that was profound. He said, are you saved? I said, hmm. Coach, saved from what? I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, what, what's up? Are you saved? I say, Coach, I'm from Jacksonville. We go to church 15 days a week. Yes, of course I am. And he said to me, he said to me I want you to make sure you write with God before you go anywhere. Because once you write with God, you can do what you want. You can go to step shows. You can go anywhere you want. You're still the same person. Just be a good person. Yeah. When he said that, my heart was beating. Because I didn't think to get that from a coach. I know I'd get it from a pastor, but not from a coach. What helped him relate to so many players that were so different than he was? Because he didn't care where you came from. And he realized the demographics of going to meet somebody like Roy Butler in the projects and somebody else maybe from California. These are all my boys. And we're like his kids. And you know how some people tell you, my door is always open if you ever need anything. Coach Bowden, take the door off the hinges. You just walk in. And he he's a problem solver. And this is while he's coaching, by the way. He, I mean, he just wants to, how can I help you? How can I solve your problem? And that was one of the things that I appreciated about him. He even actually taught me how to wash clothes. I didn't know how to wash clothes. My mom washed my clothes. I'm in high school. <laughs> he said, no, you got to separate them. You have colors, whites, and da-da-da. You use white, you know, I love that. <laughs> I'm jamming a dollar into a machine that says coins only. Oh, God. I love just picturing <laughs> gotta, that. I'm just walking I, you through I, I, every step. <laughs> you know, Fitz, you mentioned this earlier, and it's so true. We talk about the coaching trees, but beyond the other coaches that they impacted or the players and teams that they got wins with, they uh, if they're great at this, they actually teach people how to be good humans and grow up to be good men. Leroy, thanks so much for the memories. Really fantastic. Anytime. I really appreciate y'all having me. Rest in peace, Coach. We love you. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. ESPN Giants reporter Jordan Renan is joining us on the Goodyear Hotline. And the Giants, Jordan, obviously all eyes on this team. A lot of expectations. Everybody talking about Joe Judge. But we'll start with the most basic of basics. You're at camp. You're seeing this all the time. How should everybody feel about Daniel Jones entering this season? 
I mean, I think the feeling that everybody has is about right. Like, yeah, okay, you know, he's got to show it. I mean, let's, let's see. If it, the reality is, and it's kind of strange, and I know, I think when I talk to the national, you know, people about the national perspective, it's way more negative, I think, than locally. And it's probably like after his rookie year, there was a lot of optimism. He had a pretty good rookie year. He flashed. Last year was an utter disaster, right? I mean, he had nothing to work with. He didn't play particularly well. The reality is Daniel Jones is probably somewhere right between that, right? And uh, he's got weapons now to work with. The hope is that those weapons could make him even better, right? If you add Saquon, you tell me, you add Saquon Barkley and Kenny Galladay to any offense, those two players alone, assuming they're both healthy and have full strength, how could you not be significantly better? And that'll make Daniel Jones better. Yeah, you mentioned Saquon Barkley. He's not going to do any 7-7 work. He's not going to do 11-on-11. They did let him do a bit more after he petitioned to do less watching and more doing. Uh, Anything to be gained from seeing the early moments of Saquon back out there? You know, it's just good to see him back out there. It's the first time in 11 months since that Bears game last year. I mean, so week two last year, 11 months until he got back into a practice. So just the fact that he's on the practice, that he's feeling good, that is optimistic. Now, really, the thing in this situation that I take the most from, the date that I was told at one point in the offseason was he needs to be back by the Cleveland joint practices in order to have a real shot and get ramped up to be ready for week one. Well, guess what? This is like 10 days before the Cleveland joint practices. So he has plenty of time now. He's almost I don't want to say he's ahead of schedule. Because, you know, anything can happen when you're coming back from a major injury. One day could be good, the next day could be not so good. But the fact that he was back on the field today, the week before those Cleveland practices, to me that's a good sign for week one. So we've had a lot of conversation about the Giants and Joe Judge and whether or not his personality is too big, whether or not it's too tough, and why <laughs> players are retiring. Like, What do you make of all the noise around Joe Judge at this point? I don't make a lot about about it, to be honest with you. And Joe Judge has been pretty straightforward about the idea that, you know, his program might not be for everybody, right? Like, he's he's hard. He's going to be hard. But this is why I don't, I don't think it's a big deal and I don't make much of it all. I've gotten to know Joe Judge over the past, what, two years now? He has an ability – to interact with people. And it sounds like, okay, anybody has interpersonal skills. Well, NFL head coaches are are sometimes strange birds, right? I mean, these guys, it it seems simple, but he just knows how to interact with people, and he can curse a guy up and down. I've seen it. And just yell at them and be on them and then put his arm around them 10 minutes later, and he can smooth it over. And there's a skill to that. There's some people – that can just say whatever they want, and then they're able to smooth it over. Joe Judge is one of those guys. So to me, I don't really make much of the whole retiring and hard camp kind of thing because as long as his veteran players are bought in, and right now, as far as I can tell, everyone I spoke to, they're all bought in. So to me, non-factor. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're going camping, checking in with all the NFL teams to figure out what the big storylines are ahead of the preseason and then the regular season. ESPN Giants reporter Jordan Renan on with us now. Let's talk about, you know, for for the national folks who aren't reading every day in and out about this Giants team, mm-hmm. beyond the obvious, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses that are dominating conversation around camp? Yeah, I mean, for the Giants, it always comes back to can they protect their quarterback? It's been like that. I always I make this joke, and it's really not even a joke anymore. We're on year they're on year eight of the offensive line rebuild, and I've been sitting here watching it every year. <laughs> the offensive line rebuild, year eight. Okay, it's tiring already. I'm tired of the <laughs> offensive line rebuild, but we're still there, and there's probably as many question marks now as there was six years ago. You can make an argument that the Giants have question marks at all five positions on their offensive line. So, you know, Andrew Thomas, second-year guy, number four overall pick the previous year, got to play better, did play better in the second half last year, but they need more of that. Uh, right tackle, they're, they're maybe starting a guy, a second-year tackle who hasn't really played much. Center, second year ever playing that position. Will Hernandez at one of the guard spots, they, wanted to, they basically benched him last year. Shane Lemieux, 
rookie last year at the other guard spot, you know, he had trouble against the, as a, against the pass. So it always comes back to the offensive line for the Giants. Also, where are they going to find a real dominant edge rusher? Do they have one on their roster? I mean, you look out there, they have a lot of guys injured at that position in camp. Uh, they're really thin there. And in order for that defense, they were good last year. It was a top-10 defense. Want to take it to the next level? Got to find an edge rusher that steps up and can be at least a threat to be a 10-sack guy. So far, not sure they have that. Jordan, I know we got to get your prediction, but before we do any of that, I, I love it when training camp used to be in some random spot and it felt more like summer camp. I know it's not necessarily that way in the <laughs> NFL anymore, but take away the stuff no. on the field. What's the best and worst part about training camp with the Giants? Covering it, you're talking about? Yeah, like what's the, yeah, what's the best Just and worst? There. I mean, you know, most people, and I was explaining this to a friend before, this is the worst part, and you're like, yeah, you're watching football. They're like, oh, watching practice must be fun. Let me tell you, watching practice five days in a row, 10, 15, 20 times, practice is boring, okay? <laughs> it is really boring to watch the same NFL practice over and over again, basically. And I, that is the downside. The positive is I'm watching football for a living, so can I really be complaining about it? I really shouldn't, so I'm not going to complain about that. And also, somehow, East Rutherford this summer – I don't know. We every day has been like 80 degrees and sunny so far, and you know we're, it's the it's a swamp. It is literally a swamp. The Meadowlands <laughs> is a swamp. It's hot and muggy usually. It's been beautiful, so wow. no, no complaints s- here. No swass. You get no a good s- tan also, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Woo! No swass. I guess is the upside. All right, so we're going to record a season record prediction from each of our camping reporters, Uh-oh. and I know there's lots that can change, but we're going to throw it down. Maybe we'll have a prize for whoever gets closest. So give it to us. What you got? Uh, nine and eight. First of all, I can't stand the seventeen. It's just so awful. I know. It's nine me and off. eight. I mean, I would be around. I'd be around eight and nine. Nine and eight. I'm all lean positive. It's it's still the summer. Let's go. All right, nine and eight. Nine and eight. Books. It's in the books, Jordan. We appreciate your time. Thanks for hanging out with us. All right, don't hold me to that. Speak to you soon. <laughs> Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Problem. Here we are. Show drama, kind of like NFL drama, and plenty of teams with a little bit of drama as we head into the preseason. Seahawks back in the news for making Russell Wilson mad again. And you recall, of course, a very contentious offseason where one point Chicago Bears fans thought they might have a chance at him. It was one of the only times anyone's ever said, here are the places I would want to go, the Bears. And we were like, what? This is the top five moment in our franchise history. Um, didn't happen. He stuck around. But Russell Wilson frustrated because the team is in a contract dispute with starting left tackle Dwayne Brown, and he wants a new deal. He's not shown up in camp, so he could show the Seahawks he really means business about this. And this is not that strange to see happening, but what is strange is Russell Wilson publicly speaking about it. Here's what he said. Not having Dwayne Brown out there is a pretty significant deal because I think he's one of the best left tackles in the game. There's no arguing it. I think he's as good as it gets. There's nobody more athletic, more talented than he is. Age is just a number. He looks like he's 28 to 30 out there. He's really exceptional, so smart and physical, understands the game, and I think people fear him, to be honest with you, when they're rushing him and playing against him. So we definitely want to be able to get him back out there. We've got to figure out that that out because we need Dwayne Brown, okay? You don't hear a lot of people talking about other guys' contracts, fits, and you certainly don't often hear Russell Wilson being public in any way that isn't super uh, beneficial to the team. Does this feel like a new era, and does this feel like a big deal? Yes and yes. I think, you know, realistically, knowing where they stand as a relationship, now you're in that spot where I, I feel like the, the Seahawks and Russell Wilson went through very public couples counseling, essentially, in the last few months. And now he's being assertive about what he wants. How's the team going to respond to that? And and that becomes an interesting part of it. Now, I, I asked Mina about it earlier today. Mina Kimes, our resident uh, Seahawks aficionado, obviously. And she went straight to much of what you just mentioned. I mean, at some point, Brown should be resigned because Brown's great. This shouldn't be complicated. Uh, but nothing's ever that simple. Once he gets involved, Russell Wilson being he, once his voice gets involved here, though, I don't know how you're the Seahawks and you don't feel a little twinge mm-hmm. of fear that if you don't do this the right way, maybe he's just going to walk. 
Disgruntled, yeah, you don't want to keep Brown disgruntled or Wilson for that matter. They've also got Pro Bowl safety Jamal Adams that they're trying to extend. So they've made him their priority and they maybe need to figure out how to multitask because uh, Brown was second in ESPN's pass block win rate as a tackle last season. Fifth overall since 2018, was in all 16 games in 2018 and 2020, missed just four in 2019. Um so, yeah, it's a priority, and, and they don't want that kind of drama. They want to keep Russ happy. Speaking of line drama, Fitz, my Bears. And we've been talking about this. It sounds like Andy Dalton's going to be the starter for now. They don't want to force Justin Fields into anything. Ton of pressure being a quarterback in the Chicago market. They want him to be ready for it. They want the coverage to be ready, and right now it's not. Attrition being the story of camp for the Bears, and – they're in the hunt for a good left tackle. They've got four players that they've played at the position since camp opened a little over a week ago, and they have not been able to get Tevin Jenkins, who they took in the second round, out on the field. He's got a back injury and has missed all eight practices so far. Sounded early on like, oh, we just got to get it. He's got a little back thing. And now here we are having yet to see him at all. Uh, Fitz, that is a very important position to have a Big giant question mark about before the season starts. Yeah, and it's an important position, particularly because of what they're hoping for from Justin Fields. I mean, it has to impact your decision on what you're doing with your quarterback Mm -hmm. if you feel like he can't be secure on his offensive line. But then it also has to impact your decision if you feel like you need to put somebody out with a little bit better mobility to avoid getting murdered behind an offensive line that is not what it could be. So this is sort of the worst damned if you do and damned if you don't scenario for the Bears. And, uh, you know, the only thing that, that we all agree right now, worst case scenario, God forbid, for Justin Fields, is putting himself out there in any situation, much like we saw with Joe Burrow last year, where you're putting him at risk. Yep. And so they've got to get the offensive line thing figured out quickly. Otherwise, it is going to be like Burrow, and we're going to be cringing every week. And then all of a sudden, they're all going to be learning a new coaching system staff, and uh, uh, or I should say system, uh, from the staff yeah. in a year. Yeah, and fits in. It's not just... Uh, fields, obviously that's very important, but whoever's out there, and if it's Andy Dalton, you still can't have question marks there. And unfortunately, the team let go of friend of the show, Charles Leno, right after they picked Jenkins in the draft. Leno started 93 straight regular season games, and in his six years with the team, did not miss as many practices as Jenkins already had to start, mm. already has to start his career. Um, it's, it's a tough look for the Bears as they try to find some consistency at that position moving forward and can't find their guy yet. It's Fane and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jace Fitz talking about drama around the NFL as training camps lead way to preseason games starting up. Lamar Jackson is certainly a part of that. Here's what he said about still not knowing about getting the vaccine after getting COVID twice. I mean, you know, I, I just got off the COVID list. You know, I, you know, I got to talk to my team doctors and, you know, try to See how they feel about it, you know, um, keep learning as much as I can about it, and we'll go from there. So you might, you might. We'll see, we'll see. Talking to the doctors, we'll see. I feel it's a personal decision, you know, I'm just going to worry about that with my family, you know, um, keep my feelings to my family and myself. Uh, I'm focused on getting better right now, you know, I can't dwell on that right now, how everybody else feels. Just trying to get back in a great routine. Fitz, uh, okay. Got to talk to my team, see how they feel about it. Okay, we can let you know. We know how they feel. They want you to get vaccinated. All right, we'll see. I'm going to talk to the doctors. We'll see. Oh, we can let you know. The doctors are going to tell you to get vaccinated. How could you be at this point still trying to sell us on the, I got to keep learning about it. I can't dwell on how everybody else feels. Just trying to get back to the right routine. You know how it's easier to get back to a routine when you're not constantly out because of contracting COVID, which you've done twice in the last eight months. You already missed a game and your team lost because of it. And then you missed 10 days of preseason practice. You are trying to get a massive bag and also elevate your team. And you're one of the best in the league. I I cannot imagine the frustration fits. Yeah, personal decision isn't something you get to make when you're part of a union and part of a team. At some point, every decision has consequence, and his decisions will have consequence for all of the people that surround him. Also, we know that there are some serious long-hauler effects to getting this this, uh, virus. Uh, And I'm just, I'm worried about uh, about that with him if he keeps playing this game. Coming up, we're going to check out a team with a rookie QB set to take the helm. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. 
Rich Samini, ESPN Jets reporter with us here. And there's lots of, you know, position battles and new quarterback conversations to have. But, Rich, I read your story. I love the idea of the rookie hype machine. Tell us about Mm -hmm. that. And is anybody the leader in the clubhouse in terms of getting the crowd hyped? Well, uh, Sarah, what happened was they were walking out to practice the first day of, where they had public practice. There was a couple of thousand people there. And the offensive line coach, John Benton, said to a couple of the linemen, do you guys do a rookie hype machine? And they're like, what's that? And he said he explained it to them. And they said, we do now. And they got uh, rookie uh, guard Elijah Vera Tucker to do the first one. And they just he basically runs out in front of the crowd and acts like a cheerleader, you know, just tries to get the crowd fired up and jumping up and down and leading chants. And so they have a competition, uh, you know, among the different position groups. Because, you know, football players love to analyze tape, of course. So <laughs> at night, they, they review and critique each guy's performance in front of the crowd. So if you ask the linemen, they say Vera Tucker is the leader in the clubhouse. So, Rich, you know, I think it's interesting because you put an article up about how many starters this NFL draft could yield on offense. And I look back at the list and Michael Carter and Elijah Moore and Elijah uh, uh, Vera Tucker, Zach Wilson, they're all really exciting players, but they're all going to need time. How do you get that many rookies integrated into one offense and still have a patient fan base? Yeah, well, uh, the second part is going to be <laughs> difficult. Uh, New Yorkers not known as the most patient fans, but uh, yeah, I mean, for sure, Ben McCampley is going to be a day one starter left guard, and obviously Zach Wilson's a day one starter. Uh, you know, Elijah Moore and Carter will be coming in and out, you know, because of the nature of their positions. But Moore's going to be on the field a lot. I mean, he's really good. He's having the best camp out of any rookie on the team. And Carter's doing okay. They're a little crowded at running back, so he may not get as many reps as the other ones. But it's going to be uh, – and they have a rookie coordinator too, Mike LaFleur, younger brother of Matt LaFleur. So there's youth, uh, you know, on the roster in the coaches' room. So it's going to be a kind of a bumpy year, a lot of growing pains on offense. Spain and Fitz here, Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Rich Samini out at Jets camp as we go camping, checking in with all the teams ahead of the preseason getting underway. Let's talk about Zach Wilson as someone who's been covering – uh, the NFL for a long time. When you're watching training camp practices, which Jordan Renan just revealed to us shockingly are boring after a while, what are you looking for to actually see whether someone can make the leap from the college ranks to the pros? Oh, you know, I, you know, sometimes Jordan's right. Sometimes it gets a little tedious, but uh, it sure beats two a days like they had way back when, like <laughs> 10 years ago. But, with, you know, with Zach, you know, you're looking to see how teammates respond to him. Uh, I look to see what he does when he's not on the field, like when, he, when it's not his turn. What is he doing on the sideline? You know, is he just chatting with teammates or is he with the coaches, you know, trying to get better? And, you know, Zach checks all those boxes. He, I think he's a really hardworking kid. He's very earnest. The coaches have nothing but good things to say about his work ethic. He's had some rough practices. I mean, the last few days, uh, they stopped doing scripted practices a few days ago and went more like game-like. And since then, he's he's had a few hiccups. You know, they're not sugarcoating it. He's had some ups and downs. But, uh, it's, look, he's, it's, he's a rookie. He's getting a ton of reps. He's learning stuff every day. And it's going to be like this this year. You know, they're going to have some good days and some bad days. Yeah, but that being said, I mean, uh, we all know re- he's coming from BYU. It's such a jump. How long until we can actually be allowed to react to whether or not he's doing well or poorly? You're right, Jason. It is a big jump from BYU, especially last year. They played such a bad schedule. You know, not all their fault. I mean, things were being done, you know, in the spur of the moment because of the pandemic. So they were rescheduling and he played a very, very easy schedule. So, you know, those windows that he was throwing to in college are not there anymore. And he does have some good receivers here. You know, Corey Davis is a really good receiver. He hooked up with him a couple of times today in the red zone. And you can see them building chemistry. I think he's got a good chemistry with Elijah Moore. But, you know, I, I don't think we can make any judgments. And I, if he goes out against the Giants on Saturday night, and, and he'll play probably at least a quarter. And if he has another bad night, even, you know, even then some fans might be ready to, jump off the GW bridge, but even then you can't panic because it's just, it's such it's a big learning curve because as you mentioned, you know, it's a huge jump from BYU. 
Rich Samini with us talking about the Jets out of camp here on Spain and Fitz. I asked Jordan this. Let me ask it to you, too. Obviously, the national folks are going to hear the big stories about Zach and some other stuff. But what are the rest of the conversations around camp that maybe don't break through nationally in terms of strengths and weaknesses that they're worried about or excited about? Well, their defenses look pretty good so far. Now, you know, you have to put a little asterisk next to it. You know, they've been going against the rookie quarterback, so I'm sure that has something to do with it. And, uh, you know, their front four, I think, will be the strength of the team this year. They signed Carl Lawson from the Bengals. They added Sheldon Rankins from the Saints. Those two guys, Rankins, I mean, uh, Lawson in particular, is probably the best player in camp. I mean, they just – He's very disruptive. They, they can't really block him. So that's very encouraging for the Jets. I think this will be a defense predicated on their front four. Robert Sala does not like to blitz a lot. He didn't do that with the Niners. He's counting on his front four to get home. And so, and they don't even have Quentin Williams yet. You know, he's probably their best overall lineman, but he's been dealing with a foot injury since the offseason. But he is scheduled to come back to practice next week. So that's good news for the Jets. And once they get him back, They'll be even stronger on the defensive line, and they'll have to be strong because the secondary is a major question mark. They are very, very young at cornerback. That could get ugly if if, the, if there's no pass rush. These corners don't stand a chance. All right, Rich, I'm going to ask you the same thing I asked earlier. I know it's not a random summer camp location, and there's not bad food and all these other things, but that being said, it's still training camp. What's the best and worst part of being around Jets training camp? Well, there is no food anymore, of course. They used to, Jets used to be really good and known for their food that they served the media. I mean, they was top-notch, especially their soups. They're kind of legendary for their soup. <laughs> but uh, because of COVID, they've had to put that on hold, and so the media doesn't get fed. So we lost our best thing. And the worst thing, there really isn't a worst thing. I mean, I guess just being a, sometimes our, our vantage point at practice is a little further away than we're used to in part because of COVID restrictions, but all things considered, that's not too bad. But I missed the soup, though. That was really good. I don't know why, but I just love the Jets being famous for soup in the middle of summer. Like, I I know you're indoors eating it, and soup is delicious all the time. It's just a funny thing uh, to focus on uh, when when the weather is, is soupy. Uh, Rich, we're asking everyone for a season prediction, and we know that that's unfair. Uh, There's plenty of time before the season gets underway. You don't get a chance to see how everyone else is doing, but we're going to do it nonetheless, and there may be some prizes uh, for the reporter who gets closest. So uh, right now, today, Monday, August 9th, what's your season record prediction? Yeah, I'm going to be consistent with what I've been saying uh, all training camp. I have the Jets at 6-11. you know, which of course is a dramatic improvement from last year's debacle at two and fourteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the team is moving in the right direction. I like the pieces. I like the coaching staff and the front office. They just don't have enough pieces yet. And so this is a total transition year. This is a get Zach Wilson ready season for the Jets. And if they can do that, no matter how many wins they get, it'll be a success. But I'm going six and eleven. Awesome right. stuff, Rich. We appreciate the insight and. I mean, the Jets are going to be an interesting team, even if they're not a winning team, interesting team for sure. I'm sure you're enjoying getting a first look at them. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Rich. You're welcome. Thank you. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I ever mentioned this, but when my husband and I went to Australia and New Zealand for our honeymoon, the very first place we stayed in Australia had this real slick, very she-she elevator. And I don't know if it did it by weight or some sort of laser, like where it could see and, and, and recognize bodies. But if you got into the elevator by yourself, it played one is the loneliest number. And oh if you God. got into the elevator with someone else, it played something like it takes two to make a thing go right or another song about pairs. And if you got in with more than two people, it played like party music. That is incredible. Look, so I, I, fun. That is that is in the world Unless, of like of if course, I'm going to be watched, then let yeah, it be that way. Agreed. Let, like, that's agreed. Per- if Big Brother's going to have fun with me. Uh, I would suck, though, if, say, you left on a date and you were snuggling in the elevator, to, it takes two to make a thing go right, and then your partner broke up with you, and when you returned to the hotel, it was one is the loneliest number. Oh, my God. Yeah. Somehow the careful. elevator would be trolling you. Just a totally <laughs> inanimate object, just rubbing it in. That's unfortunate. How do you 
All right, Fitz, I have a question for you. Yes. This is very important. I uh, I was looking into the Field of Dreams game in Dyersville, Iowa, coming up this week. New York Yankees versus Chicago White Sox. If you build it, they will come. We'll see if they'll, you know, I know they're going to go to the game. The tickets are insane prices right now. But hopefully the Yankees will actually arrive because they've got a COVID problem right now. But there is a very special menu item being debuted there by one Guy Fieri. Mm. And it involves things that you like and things that you don't. I want to know what you, what you think of it and whether you'd be down for it, okay? Okay. It is called hot dog apple pie, okay? It is a juicy beef hot dog smothered in Guy Fieri's own bacon jam enveloped in a flaky pie crust topped with an apple mustard drizzle. Demerara, no idea what that word is. Demerara, sugar, and apple pie spice. Again, juicy beef hot dog, bacon jam, flaky pie crust, apple mustard drizzle, sugar, and apple pie spice. You in? I'm out. I'm out. Look, pie crust, because huh? the pie crust is just not going to be good, guy. Look, and I appreciate the effort of putting <laughs> up, hot guy. dogs and, and, and apple pie <laughs> together. I appreciate this. By the way, guy just opened a new chicken spot in downtown Nashville. I hear it's a delight. So. I heard he's a very nice guy. That that is uh, okay. So I've had limited interaction with them backstage at some country things, but I was definitely I, I'm not sure he would remember those interactions. So I can't really speak to how, <laughs> how how nice he is one way or the other. I can tell you at least at one point he definitely knew how to throw down. That that much I know about guy. But uh, guy, I'm out on this, and uh, I'm wondering why you had to put it in a pie crust. Because other than that, it sounds like it's a delight. Like maybe if you'd made like a apple crumble uh, around it or something. I don't know. Like but, but something yeah. other than the. Are you in to try this? If it were uh, no. a beat hot. Yeah, it would have to be a veggie dog. dog. I'm not usually into like weird foods where you just throw a whole bunch of stuff together. I I prefer to just focus on something fresh and delicious where I'm really happy about the flavor of whatever it is instead of like a thousand things at once. I do appreciate that somehow he's managing to create this food item while simultaneously shilling for a completely separate thing, which is his partnership with Chevrolet. Hmm. Um, where he like revamped the slogan, baseball, hot dogs, apple pie and Chevrolet go together in the good old USA. And so he's like baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, put it all together at once. He called it a funky throwback snack. And I like how the New York Post, of course, wrote, is this heaven? No, it's flavor town. Oh, my God. Just, just well done. Uh, is, I'm not going to yeah. eat that. Uh, it does look like if you took the dog out. It looks like a delicious apple turnover. And if you keep the dog in, it looks like kind of remix on something I used to love as a kid, the bagel dog. Hmm. Do you remember bagel dog? Yes, bagel dog. I'm all in for that. It's like that, but just a little sweet. Uh, Honestly, if I ate hot dogs, I'd probably try it. I mean, I wouldn't like if guy came up and handed it to me, I wouldn't spit in his face and throw it down. I mean, I'd, I'd eat it and probably smile like, it, you know, when when your aunt made something at Thanksgiving that you knew really wasn't good, but you didn't <laughs> want to deal with the grief like that sort of thing. Like I would totally do that. I love that. I always use an ant when I don't have any ants, uh, but that, that's right. fine. Uh, you know, I, uh, I would you I'd at a least single eat ant. I, so I have one ant, but I never met her. Do you have so any I don't aunts? Know. Yeah. Uh, no, because aunt is not a word. Ant is a word. Let's, let's be real. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio could go. To, have I ever told you my one Field of Dreams story, by the way? No, I I'll, I'll tell you about Aunt Eunice. Is that not right? She's great aunt. She's great aunt. She's uh, my, that's look, my mom's Look at aunt, me so, pulling yeah, look at you. Aunt Eunice right aunt out of Eunice, you know uh, where. Aunt Eunice Good did memory. love her some squirt in there in the Rapid City and Wall I'm South I'm sorry, Dakota. what? Squirt, what? the soda. Aunt, aunt Eunice oh. always drank squirt. Uh, Super. That's what I remember. There you go. Now I've made all of America uncomfortable. Uh, Field of Dreams. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I had to, in one of my classes, write a report on Field of Dreams and the, the, the movie, obviously. And so I wrote the report instead on how asinine it was that I was being forced to write a report about a movie and that I thought that we should have better things to do with our time. Wow. So they called my like mom and, and, and wow. they called my mom and dad and, and into the like principal's office and they showed my, my parents and my mom was like, well, he's right. Like, is this, is this what we pay for? This is how, <laughs> this is, this is what tax dollars go for. So it's my only field of dream story is, uh, you I know, have a got good field trouble. of dream story. It's actually not mine, but it's just to share that if you have not listened to Nick Offerman and Mike Schur air their grievances about Field of Dreams, go immediately. So it's Joe Posnaski's podcast that he does with Mike Schur. 
and they somehow got about, got to talking about, you know, the, the Kevin Costner flick, and Nick Offerman just goes off on all of the errors. It's like an uninterrupted, like, 10-minute long list of grievances. Um, it, among the things, uh, he's supposed to be an Iowa farmer, and he wears no belt. The first time he hears the voice, he's wandering in a shoulder-high cornfield in the middle of the field with a shovel. Just wandering through the field with a shovel, which makes absolutely no sense. And then he goes to the seed store where he asks some of the older farmers if they'd heard voices in the cornfield. They look at him like he's crazy, and he buys one bag of corn seed at harvest time. I'll let you do the math on that. Then Shoeless Joe shows up. Shoeless Joe shows up on the ball field. Kevin Costner runs out. Fortunately, a dozen at least baseball bats and a huge bag of baseballs are sitting out by the unprotected backstop. So that if it were to be a dewy evening, let alone if God forbid it rained, all the equipment would be ruined. Uh, Joe asks him to pitch. He's got enough bats and balls to field two college teams, but he takes the mound with no mitt. You put lights in your cornfield and you have no mitt. And uh, by the way, also, he plowed a bunch of his own corn to build a baseball field in his cornfield and he's plowing under his cash crop and he's going to lose his farm. Anyway, he goes on to include the dimensions of Wrigley Field and the average size of a corn farm, how many acres and the profit that would be lost. It's peak Nick Offerman. And then you got Mike Schur, who, of course, created uh, Parks and Rec and The Good Place and yada, yada, uh, chiming in. It is a must listen. Everybody go find it. Yeah, that, by the way, sounds like an absolute delight, as does the Field of Dreams game, which is the White Sox-Yankees Thursday, 6.30 Eastern on ESPN Radio. Uh, I, I I think I'm all in for this, Sarah. Are you all in for, for I'm the— I'm going to the... check in on it. Okay. Um, also, I don't know if you saw that the, the, the game is in MLB The Show 21, which is pretty cool um, for That's the video amazing. game, getting yeah. a chance to play on this manufactured field. Um, they put swooshes on the uniforms. They're supposed to be throwbacks. I recognize that at all times you need to make money, but a swoosh was not invented at the time of whenever this was supposed to be. So eh, I think it'll be cool. I would rather have seen White Sox Cubs, but yeah. maybe not these Cubs. <laughs> uh, well, that is. See, look on the bright side. If it was White Sox Cubs, you probably would, be would so have sad. already. You'd already be. You would have bought a ticket and you'd be going. And now uh, you'd be sitting here saying, "What am I going to do in Iowa other than watch the game like that?" Yeah. Because kind of like you I was going to go to London to see the Cubs last year and it got canceled because of COVID. And now I definitely won't be going to London anytime soon to see the Cubs because they're not going to schedule an international game for this team. Yeah, this team is no like right now. They're on the that's cute list where like they come in and say, "Hey, what about an international game?" And everybody no. says, "Yeah." Wants to see you. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.